Hey everybody, you're listening to the Simple Electronics Podcast. I am your host, Simple Electronics, and with me I have a special guest today, Dave Bodner. Dave, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Did I pronounce the name properly? Yes, Dave Bodner works fine. Excellent. Um, can you introduce yourself to the viewers a little bit? Because I've been watching your YouTube channel for a little while, and um, I'm hoping that the viewers that haven't checked you out uh, will check you out after this. But until then, uh, who are you? Who am I? Uh, well, I'm a retired teacher. I taught uh, math and science primarily for 16 or 17 years and then spent the second half of my career, another 16 or 17 years, running the uh, technology and, uh, department in a school district, fairly large one. And uh, I've enjoyed teaching and presenting things all my life. And when I retired, I really delved in. This was about 16, 17 years ago when I retired. And I did retire young. Um, I started documenting the things that I built. I've always been an electronics hobbyist. From the time I was a young child, I used to take things apart all the time and try to figure out how they were working. Anyway, uh, I designed a, uh, a computer-controlled train back in 2004. And that was the first thing that I documented on a web page. It's still there. If you go to DaveBodner.com or TrainElectronics.com, you'll find something called the robot train in the garden. It was a garden railroad uh, locomotive. Anyway, I had a lot of fun with that, and I got uh, hooked up with a, uh, an online magazine for large-scale railroad enthusiasts, and I, I wrote articles for that magazine for, gracious, I bet 10 years until it went away. And then I just continued, and I found that YouTube is a good uh, a good way to add to the web pages that I created about various projects. So I started doing videos. I think the first video was ten or eleven years ago, and uh, I've done a oh, hundred and some since then. Uh, whenever something strikes me as as interesting, I'll try to document for others. Anyway, that's who I am. Interesting is a I think is is a little bit of an understatement because. I think pretty much everyone who's listening has an idea a little bit about electronics at least, or at least that's kind of the point to draw them in. But um, I've seen you sort of use things in a different and novel way, which I wouldn't have thought of, that's for sure, and probably a lot of my viewers wouldn't have thought of. The one thing that comes to mind is you're using an audio amplifier to uh, signal an LED to turn on to make it look like lightning. Uh, can you can you speak about that a little bit? Oh, yeah, one of my favorite projects. Um, and in the background, I don't know if you can hear it or not, there's a, a clock chiming. It's one of my other projects. I built a clock that uh, chimes out the hours and does a number of different things. Anyway, back to thunder and lightning. Um, I was trying to come up with a uh, a way not to synchronize thunder and lightning, but to synchronize... Uh, flashing lights and an explosion. We were doing a, uh, a G-scale uh, train layout, and we wanted to have a mine explosion where you would hear somebody say, uh, you know, clear the area, blasting in 10 seconds. And then at that 10-second point, you would set off a couple of uh, electronic flashes from disposable, uh, disposable cameras and have the explosion sound synchronized with it and flashing at uh, the, kind of the same rate. Anyway... Uh, 
Yeah, I took the output of an audio amp from a little thing called a DF player, which is a, an MP3 player that interfaces nicely with uh, microcontrollers, and used that to trigger a, um, a high-power transistor, a MOSFET, that was connected to some really bright LEDs. And uh, the, the blasting in 10 seconds worked out beautifully, and I took that some months later and decided it would be kind of cool to have thunder and lightning, and that worked out even better. Because thunder, of course, has a whole lot of different amplitude uh, sounds coming out of it. And you get a very, very nice effect from the, uh, the LEDs. And of course, coincidentally, LEDs got really bright about the time I was doing that. So I was able to take some 50-watt equivalent LED bulbs and flash those. Oh, it's, and, it's, and just at its core, when you think about it, the, the thunder is the noise that the lightning makes. So it makes sense that you would want to flash the the LED at the same sort of amplitude that you'd be hearing the thunder, right? They're, they're both related to each other. They just have a delay depending on how far away you are from the actual lightning, correct? Well, that brings up an interesting point. Yes, you're correct. Um, and I did feed the output of the audio into an analog input on the microcontroller so that the... Um, the louder it was, the higher the number that came in. And I set some thresholds. If it's below this particular point, don't flash the light. If it's above this threshold, go ahead. But here was the challenge. I, I initially designed this project, worked really well, but it was as though the thunder and the lightning were both occurring in your backyard. And that doesn't happen all that often, at least hopefully. You don't want uh, thunder hitting too close. And somebody said to me, you know, why don't we have it set up so you could have the, the lightning and then five seconds later, you know, a mile away, let's say, uh, you would hear the thunder. And my first reaction was the microcontrollers I was dealing with, at that time it was either a PIC microcontroller or an Arduino, they just don't have enough power to delay something. And I came up with the idea, and this is documented both on my webpage and on a uh, YouTube video, uh, take the, the stereo soundtrack that the sound card could use, uh, because it will do left and right channel, use one side of it to light up the LED, the other side of it you would delay and play the thunder. And that worked out like a champ. All you have to do in Audacity is create uh, a stereo uh, channel, pair of stereo channels, separated in time by whatever length of time you want to have the uh, the thunder come after the lightning. But I was quite pleased that, that I figured that out and got it to work. And, uh, you know, any number of people have built that project and, and written to me saying, hey, it works really well. It works incredibly well. And like looking back on it now, uh, I look at the video and I'm like, yeah, that is that's so obvious. Why didn't I think of that? But the truth is, you know, it takes someone to sit down take some time and be like, how do we solve this problem? And, and it was you, you, you did it. And, and I have to say the effect is incredibly convincing that if I ever built any uh, scale scenery or anything like that, I would definitely be implementing something just like that because the simplicity is so elegant. Like it took you all of, once you had it figured out, it, it takes you all of uh, 45 seconds to run your audio through a program like Audacity and delay one of the channels and then you're done. So you can add uh, hundreds of, of different 
um, thunder and, and lightning effects if you wanted to with the same concept, right? Oh, yeah. And, and there are any number of things you can do with this, both in thunder and lightning and things like an explosion or, or what have you. And it's not just uh, model railroad people that are doing this. There are not a lot of people that are really into the weather. And they've made uh, clouds for their living room out of gray colored cotton. And they'll put the lights inside of the cotton clouds and they'll, you know, periodically play the thunder and lightning. It's kind of neat. Yeah, that's brilliant. I've actually seen people make um, 3D printed versions of the Saturn V rocket, for example, and use uh, similar concepts to do the um, sort of like the, uh, the the rocket fire inside of a cloud of, of cotton for, for the exhaust. So you can have a, um, a lamp which looks like it's a Saturn V rocket taking off. And I mean, how much more inspirational can you get? Than, than a Saturn V taking out taking off in your living room, right? That's it's incredible. That would be incredible. Yeah. So, but it doesn't end there because you actually um, Arduino was kind of like a, a later addition to your channel. I see that your uh, earlier videos are using another microcontroller. You were using a pickaxe for a while. Can you can you talk to that a little bit? Oh, I can even go back further than that. In uh, oh, it must have been the early '90s. Uh, a microcontroller called the Basic Stamp uh, came on the market from a company called Parallax. And I'm a ham radio operator, and I, I was reading one of the ham radio journals, and somebody wrote up an article that showed how you could take this little microcontroller, uh, connect it to a, uh, a radio and a touchtone decoder, and by sending touchtone, uh, the, the noises that come out of a telephone when you're dialing, um, to it, you could activate a relay. And I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And that was the first project I ever did with a microcontroller. And, I, and I'm thinking it was might have early 90s, could have been late 80s. And after that, I found the pickaxe. The pickaxe is a, uh, and they're still around. It's a microcontroller used primarily in schools in Great Britain and Australia. Um, it's a PIC microprocessor. Uh, PIC comes from a company called uh, oh, Microchip now, I think. There you go, Microchip, down in, uh, in Phoenix or Chandler, Arizona. And they put a front end on it so that you can program the PIC just using a serial port or now a USB port. And it's pretty robust. I mean, I still use them occasionally, but I decided at one point that why should I be using the pickaxe, which sits on top of a pick? Why not learn how to use the pick? So I bought a program called Pick Basic Pro, a couple hundred bucks for the programming software and the interface. But uh, I did an awful lot of projects for many years using the uh, the pick microprocessor, a whole bunch of different uh, varieties. I still use them, but. Um, Maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, I decided I should learn something about the Arduino because that was really the most popular worldwide processor. So I've, I've been working with uh, Arduino, again, of many different varieties for the better part of 10 years. Yeah, uh, Arduino is fantastic because I've, I feel like what they've built, uh, because, I mean, it's nothing special. It's an Atmel uh, microprocessor uh, and like you said pick existed for a long time and enthusiasts were using you know z80s and stuff long ago so a microcontroller is nothing novel what's novel is they seem to have standardized the form factor they've standardized the environment they've standardized um, libraries 
And I believe that level of standardization and then open sourcing of the hardware and the software just allowed um, the commoner, uh, like everyday people, to pick it up and use it. It's just a, it's more beginner friendly than than having to learn uh, basic, for example, or or like machine code. I find it's a little bit more accessible, and so people are less afraid of it. And I think that's what caused it to take off. Would you agree with that? I think I would. Uh, there was a time when I encouraged people very strongly to use a pickaxe because the software was free. It was relatively well-supported, relatively inexpensive. And uh, I shifted away from that some years ago, probably six or seven years ago in the various seminars that I've done, uh, and encouraged people to learn the Arduino. Uh, C is a much more, uh, I guess, commonly used language. Uh, there's a phenomenal amount of support on the internet. I mean, if you have a problem, you just type in an error message and, and you know into Google, and you're going to find a couple of hundred people that had the same problem and and you know give you some assistance, either by reading what they did or sending a question to a forum. Um, yeah, you, you have to have some idea how to program. But it's not all that bad, and the tools are there to help you to learn it uh, in relatively short order. Absolutely. And I think that's the same kind of deal with uh, the single board computers, because I own a couple Raspberry Pis, and I own a couple Orange Pis, which is it's known as a knockoff, but I mean, it's entirely different because it has a all-winner HC uh, system on chip. It's very different to the Raspberry Pi. But I'll tell you, if I run into a problem with the Raspberry Pi, the internet uh, seems to be about 10% filled with with just people using Raspberry Pis, whereas the Orange Pi, I have to go onto like specialty forums that really deal with that, and the traffic there is abysmal. So if I'm recommending a single board computer for somebody to buy, it'll be a Raspberry Pi every day of the week. Yeah, I, I, coincidentally, I've been working with the Raspberry Pi for ever since the first one came out. Let's put it that way. I think I bought it within a month of them being released to the general public. Uh, that that was a microcontroller-based device that was meant, uh, as I recall, one of their universities developed it, and they were sending them out to new students to see what they would do to the, with them before they would start their uh, their college education. And uh, boy, it was cheap, 35 bucks, as I recall, for the first one that I bought. And right now you can get a Pi Zero for, what, five bucks plus shipping? I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, if you're an American, here in Canada, we, uh, I think the cheapest uh, Pi Zero I can pick up must be in a uh, package. We can't buy a Pi Zero by itself from any retailer that sells in, in Canada. Um, and I think the package with the shipping starts at about 45 or, or $50. So it really took away the kind of um, the, the hope I had for a $5 microcontroller. Thankfully, a, a fellow YouTuber um, called Another Maker, he lives uh, in the States uh, near a micro center, in fact. And last time he went to micro center, he picked me up a, a Raspberry Pi and shipped it to me, a Pi Zero. And so I now have my hands on my first Pi Zero, and I'm actually excited to get started with that little thing. Yeah, I've got a bunch of them. I'm, as I mentioned, I'm a ham radio operator, and there's a protocol for ham radio operators called DMR, and it allows me to use voice over IP uh, into an interface that goes into a Pi Zero, and the whole thing winds up being about the size of three or four packs of chewing gum, and I can talk to people all over the world with it. 
um, using voice over IP. And it, it's the center of that whole thing. The way that it operates is based on the, uh, the Pi Zero. That's, that's incredible. Anything, any technologies that, that will uh, bring people of similar uh, interests together, I think is, is just a, a net positive overall. Well, yeah, and the, the thing that's most interesting about this, I'm a cyclist and I ride pretty much every day and, and weekdays I'll go out at 5 a.m. before traffic starts to, to peak up and ride out into the country. And I can carry this radio equipment with me. Again, being voice over IP, part of the, it uses a, uh, a Wi-Fi connection through my phone and I can chat with a group of people that I've gotten to know over the last couple of years literally all over the U.S., just as though they were sitting next to me on another bike. I mean, the quality is phenomenal. So the technology has done some really neat things. Absolutely. And I'm actually, uh, I'm hopeful for the future because if we have these, um, these Atmel chips on the Arduinos, which are now becoming, I don't know, like some of them are available, let's say the ATtiny85, the, the, little, the little one, that thing's available for under a buck each and i mean it doesn't have as much computational power as an uno or a mega but like it's literally under a dollar you can do work for under a dollar and as technology advances and the uh, processes shrink the nodes shrink and the efficiencies go up um i just i look forward to seeing what kind of microchips we'll be able to get in 10 years for a dollar you know it, it seems limitless well, yeah, Moore's Law says it's going to double every 18 months, and that I get, see no reason why that wouldn't be true of these little devices. Um, in, in terms of cost, still the most cost-effective bang for the buck is the pick. You can get an 8- or 14-pin pick uh, for less than a dollar, and that has a lot more power and needs, needs a lot less on the front end than the, uh, the Atmel chips. Um, I'm still very pleased with the way the pick operates, and, and you know, one of my favorite projects was a uh, a flashing LED light set on my helmet, and this happened to be the cover story on Nuts and Volts magazine a few years back. And what it does, instead of just flashing to let cars know that hey, there's somebody coming, it flashes out the temperature. If the temperature is uh, you know 65 degrees, it'll flash six times, pause, slash five times. And then it has a pause before it starts up again. So all my buddies know to look at my helmet to find out what the temperature is. See, that, that's incredible. I, I use those kinds of examples when I teach my students, since I teach uh, the automotive trade. I teach my students about um, microcontrollers and, uh, and electrical and whatever. And I'm, I'm explaining to them that the um, computerization of cars, like cars becoming more and more electronic, is actually a net cost saving because a uh, you're running fewer wires because you have fewer sort of um, direct like circuits that are controlled directly by relays so so your signal doesn't have to go like from the driver to the front fuse box through a relay and then all the way back to where it needs to be controlled but on top of that the manufacturers can start differentiating their models by simply um, software so for example one vehicle will have uh, the windows roll up up and down with the switches as normal. The driver's window will have an auto up, auto down. But then on the next model, they can program the both front windows to have auto up, auto down. And the next model up, they can do all four windows, for example. And that's all by flipping a couple bits in, in code, right? They just write in the code for all the modules 
and the modules that get installed in the lower end cars they just disable the the features and so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to to go all electronics but you do have to know how they work in order to diagnose them at least in my trade yeah the, the interesting thing about the new Corvette the C8 is it has a uh, a throttle excuse me brake by wire which bothered a lot of people there is a linkage to the braking system but primarily it's it's a potentiometer when you put your foot down it tells the the system to crank up a pump and put pressure onto the fluid. But the reason they did that, which fascinated me, is if you happen to be in a racing situation and your brakes get so hot that you boil the, the brake fluid, most cars, standard car, will not stop because it's got uh, gas in the lines. This thing, because you're telling a motor to put pressure on it, will continue to put pressure until the car stops. Exactly. Because the pump won't run out of stroke. It's a it's a circular uh, device. Exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah. So uh, some of the new Hondas, because I work at a Honda dealership, um, some of the new Hondas have full electric uh, brakes. But um, it's funny because when you're pushing on that potentiometer, you're still pushing on a plunger in a master cylinder. It's just doing nothing. But if you sink your foot all the way to the to the firewall, um, that plunger will go and and actually touch the piston and push the piston the rest of the way in. So so you do have manual braking, but you have to go beyond the regular reach of the um, of the master cylinders. You know, regular use. It's very interesting how they implemented that. Yeah, that's again, that's exactly what the C8 Corvette does. And it's crazy because you can look today at uh, modern day Mercedes S Class, for example, and they have so much. Um, so much uh, electrical stuff on it and it's really expensive to produce all these things but that means that in five to ten years you're going to get those kind of electronic things on the base models those high-end luxury cars or the high-end sports cars that have the really high demands like a Corvette or Mercedes um, those things they pioneer all this technology and then it boils down into the you know the the Sonics and the Civics and the uh, Corollas eventually it's very interesting stuff how, how technology kind of trickles down from one end to the other. Yes, it is. And in our hobbies as well. Oh, yeah, 100%, right? Again, um, if we didn't have uh, high-end um, optical processing from, let's say, um, the auto manufacturers, which comes from even like military technology and, and NASA technology, uh, then we wouldn't have sort of the AI capabilities to look through a Raspberry Pi camera and detect faces, for example. Yeah, or, or do do certain behaviors based on what you see. Uh, I've got a, a drone that has some optical uh, capabilities that when it's landing in particular, it, it knows how far away the ground is and it slows down and plants itself beautifully every time. That sounds like a DJI product, am I right? Yeah, I got the Mini a couple of weeks ago and I absolutely love it. That's very nice. I stopped flying uh, drones here as soon as they changed the regulations. So I now need uh, authorization from Transport Canada to fly anything above 250 grams. And I mean, it's not difficult to do the course. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. So it's been a little while since I've been up in the air. Well, the nice thing about the Mini is it weighs 249 grams. Oh, they did it by purpose. This is That's the modern equivalent of the 9.9 uh, .9 horsepower outboard, I feel. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, take a look at some of the videos on YouTube. You'll, you'll be absolutely amazed at the quality. Oh, yeah. Again, everything shrinkifying and coming down in cost 
because of volume is insane. I don't know if you know anything about the the advent of um, of smartphones and what that brought to the electronics hobby, but I know that um, because of smartphones, starting with the um, around the time that that Apple had their first. Uh, first iPhone and then there was an explosion of technology uh, that's what drove the gyroscopes down the solid state gyroscopes down in, in cost and now we can get them I think I bought the last uh, MEMS gyro board for like a buck or something well I can remember buying an accelerometer this would have been probably in the early 90s what maybe a little bit after that when I was working with the uh, the basic stamp uh, I was teaching a model rocketry course in the summer and I developed the circuit where you could put the accelerometer in the nose cone of the rocket, have it record onto the uh, what little bit of memory was in the basic stamp. And when you got it back, you could graph the acceleration curve. And also when the, the ejection charge went out and when it hit the ground. Yeah, that's I mean, that sort of stuff is so impressive. And if the viewers want to learn a little bit more about it, uh, I think uh, Dave Jones from the EEV blog had a guest on where um, where they were talking about how those gyros um, and those accelerometers work. They're basically they're capacitors, as far as I know. They're solid state capacitors, and the the movement um, just makes the plates uh, approach and and like get closer to each other and then move away from each other by you know in the micrometer micrometer or or less scale, and you can actually read that. It's it's incredible. Yeah, that and again, I was working with the first ones. Now you can get a three-axis accelerometer that's what the size of a grain of rice. Oh yeah, and it's accessible to anybody. Do you know anything about uh, Bruce Simpson's uh, from uh, RC Model Reviews YouTube channel? I do not. So he got in trouble in the early aughts, somewhere like maybe sorry, maybe two thousand six, seven, something like that. Uh, because he had a uh, website, you know, not very different than yours, but he was doing mostly remote-controlled uh, aircraft and stuff. And he was writing a book about how to build a cruise missile at home because the RC aircraft hobby, the electronics were coming down in price so quickly that anybody could afford uh, a couple hundred bucks worth of stuff and you could build something akin to... Um, a cruise missile, you know, without the warhead, just the, the electronics to steer it and, and stuff uh, for like a couple thousand dollars, I think his bill of material was. So he had uh, the FBI, he had like like MI6, basically all the nations were starting to, to contact him, be like, like, are you a terrorist? Like, what's going on here? It, it was crazy. Well, yeah, the GPS uh, is really the thing that would drive that. Uh, they've gotten to the point now with these drones uh, the ones that don't have geofencing, you can put them through a door anywhere you want. Oh yeah, it's super, it's super precise. And then for what you can't really do, because GPS still has a maybe a, a foot or so of, uh, uh, of of play in it. But then whenever you get that close, I mean, you have way better sensors for up close, anyways. So you could do uh, obstacle detection and avoiding locally. It's it's great. The GPS will get you you know, within a couple feet, and then you can maneuver the rest of the way with other sensors. It's incredible. Well, I'll tell you, the drone does a pretty good job because if you tell it to come back to where it took off, it's it's within a few inches. Inches? Yeah, it's very, very precise. 
That's awesome. This one yeah, it, uses both the, the U.S. Uh, GPS satellites and the Russian, was it Glasnost? I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but they've got a constellation of satellites also. This uses both of them. Yeah, I guess the more uh, the more points you can calculate from, the more accurate, right? Correct. So that that's uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, so, but you you and I have something else in common is that uh, so we both uh, well you used to teach and I've just started teaching a couple of years ago I think three or four now years ago it's hard for me to tell because at some point when I was hired there was a teacher's strike so I don't know if they count that or not um, but uh, you taught. Uh, math and science. What was your favorite thing to teach? Uh, I enjoyed both of them. Probably science because I, I built a lot of things and uh, tried to bring some interest to it. We did a, a major uh, a unit on model rocketry every year, and and it wasn't just you know building a rocket and going out and firing it on the football field, but it was all the tracking and determining the trigonometry so you could figure out how high it went, the acceleration, the top speed. All that. So it was uh, um, probably six weeks of uh, pretty intense study. Uh, there, there again are some phenomenal resources on the internet at that time in print that uh, that we made use of. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I think I think having a, a teacher that is sort of uh, into it, like really, not that. I mean, I don't want to say that that you weren't there to do your job. You were obviously there to do your job. But when you take an interest uh, beyond it, I think the students really latch on to that and, and they start um, they start hanging on near every word a little bit more than just, you know, reciting whatever stuff is in the assigned textbook for the semester, right? Well, yeah, and the advantage that I had at that time, this was in the uh, early 70s, probably through the mid-80s. Uh, the principal that I worked under had confidence in what we were doing when we designed our own curriculum to meet objectives. Today, you're pretty much taking standard uh, concepts that someone has put together in a particular order and they want you to teach that. You know, on Thursday, the 7th of April, you should be teaching this. Well, we didn't do that. We did, a, as I said, a big unit on model rocketry. We did another big unit on photography. And we would tie those things together with the uh, the concepts we were trying to teach. Yeah, I teach college, so it's a little bit different than um, elementary, or I guess it's community college for for you Americans listening um, over here. We have uh, we don't call our universities colleges, I guess we call our uh, we have universities uh, colleges, and then that's it, basically high school below that. So it's basically a, a trade school that I teach at. But I'm lucky that my 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 boss and my direct supervisor, he's a co-professor there as well. He kind of uh, he trusts me explicitly. Um, it's actually I was a little taken aback by how much he trusted me to deliver the content, even when I was like fresh. I was new. He just figured that I knew what I was talking about when it came to my profession, and that I would translate that um, on my own to to the students. And then he got feedback from the students that I was doing a good job, I guess. And he's never he's never doubted me. He's just gave me carte blanche to do whatever I want, which is great because I got to actually uh, tinker with Arduino stuff and bring that in as an example where the Arduino would um, would take the place of uh, the vehicle's computer. Like uh, one example I could give you is how 
uh, automatic lighting works. Um, you and I probably can think about it uh, visually, but for the listeners out there, it's not trivial because you have to be able to measure the amount of light outside, outside the vehicle. And then you have to go and make a decision whether that amount of light is enough that you don't need your headlights or it's low enough that you should have your headlights. And then you have to go and switch on the headlights, which can also be activated manually by the driver. So you can't interrupt the driver's sort of wishes. So what I did is when I came to that kind of unit, I was talking about how there's logic involved because you can't just have a sensor sense light and then turn on the headlights whenever the light is um, uh, dim and off whenever it's bright because what happens when you drive underneath a street light? Your headlights would be flashing on and off all, all the way down the highway, right? So I actually built a, a small um, a, an Arduino type circuit that would actually wait until the light was constant enough to turn off the, the headlights, sort of like a security measure. Well, there's an awful lot of thinking that has to go into programming beyond the fact that you have to know how to program. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. There's a lot of considerations. And don't forget, these manufacturers are under pressure to keep these cars safe. If something goes wrong, um, they're on the hook. You have to keep that in mind. The hook for money. And also, they may kill a few folks if they do it wrong. 100%, right? We have uh, the famous case of uh, GM and the ignition switches, right? Like, they... They're, I don't know if it was them specifically or if it was their subcontract where, where they contracted out the device, but the ignition switches were turning themselves off. And when your car is turned off, you have no ABS, you have no airbags, you have nothing. And so people died. I mean, that's a, it's a big deal. Well, also the, the fact that today we, to start a car, you have to put your foot on the brake. That's yeah. been 20 years. And oh, yeah. because of cars running away, um, getting out of control because of starting when you weren't ready for it. Oh, 100%. Even the uh, clutch safety switch where if you have a manual vehicle, uh, you have to have your foot on the clutch. I, I mean, I've worked on some cars uh, from the early, earlier mid-80s. They didn't have that. So if you wanted to turn the car on and you had your foot on the brake, but it was still in gear, in first gear, that starter was moving you. Yeah, you could use it to start the car. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred um, percent. But speaking of cars, like you have a video on your channel where you were showing off a nerd license plate, but I couldn't help but noticing what it was attached to. Oh, my toy! That was a, a birthday present when I turned seventy. What is that? Something at twenty seventeen, twenty something. That's a that's a fourteen. Um, interesting story. I I had. Uh, had an opportunity to be in a car virtually identical to that one when they came out in 2013 through 2014. And I fell in love with the color. It's a Laguna Blue Corvette. And uh, a couple years later, when I was ready to turn 70, this was two years ago, I decided I was going to buy one. I had a red Corvette at that time and I wanted the blue convertible. And they no longer make that color, uh, at least at that time, for Corvettes. And I found a used one that only had 270 miles on it. It had sat in a warehouse for three years. A dealership had ordered it and went bankrupt. And a local dealership bought it and was selling it as new. And I negotiated a pretty good deal and I wound up with that one. So that must be a nice toy to drive around in. It's a little scary, believe me. It, yeah, it's 400 and 430. Or, no, this one's 460 horsepower, I think. Yeah, it's, it gets out of its way. 
Is it the ZR1 version or just the uh, sort of like the quote unquote base model? The Z51, which is not a, not a ZR1 or a Z06, but it has everything that those have except for the supercharger. So it has the 20 inch wheels on the front and 21 in the back or 19 and 20, forget which. It, it has the fancy red calipers with multiple pistons and uh, yeah, a little wing on the back. It's, it's very nice. Uh, it's a convertible, right? I think so. Yeah, convertible. Correct. But tell us a little bit about the, the license plate then. So you have a license plate. Basically, the video was framed as though it was a, a challenge to figure out the meaning of the license plate. And uh, for the viewers, the license plate read 1001001. Yeah, I've been a math teacher and kind of fascinated by mathematics all my life. And, and 1001001 is binary for 73. And that's of significance because if you watch the Big Bang Theory, 73 is Sheldon's favorite number. And when I decided I wanted to get that license plate, I was surprised it was available in Pennsylvania, first of all. And the other thing, the reason 73 is his favorite number, you can look it up, but 73 is a prime. If you reverse it and get 37, that's a prime. If you take the prime factorization of this and that, and the, there's a ton of things that he has. But what he missed, uh, I mentioned I'm a ham radio operator, and if you uh, are ending a conversation, a way to give greetings is to say 73s. So it fit into my ham radio hobby. It fit into my enjoying the Big Bang Theory, and it fit into me enjoying binary. And it is a palindrome. That's the other thing that's important. It reads the same in both directions. So once again, something else about you that is just absolutely um, elegant, right? It just seems to, this one thing seems to, to cover a lot of uh, possibilities. So that's, that's number two on this podcast between the, um, uh, the, the solution for the thunder and lightning and, and the license plate. Every once in a while, I get it right. Yeah, the, the, the big one on YouTube was the fidget spinner brushless motor. I did that about three years ago, just on a whim. I had been in New York City and the street vendors were all selling these little fidget spinners and I had to buy one. And then once I bought it, I couldn't figure out what to do with it. And that's when I decided to turn it into a motor. Yeah, that video is fantastic because, uh, and we spoke about this a little bit before the recording here, but, but it, it is such a, it's such a, a great way to introduce so many different kind of uh, topics and in a way that a beginner can do it. In fact, I've been planning on, I've, I think, I'm looking over at my my workbench here. I think I have magnet wire sitting there for the last uh, three four years, I guess three years, waiting to to build myself my own version of that. Um, but I just haven't got to it yet. So so tell us uh, about the process of building a brushless um, motor with a fidget spinner. Well, it's just a matter of a brushless motor does not have any electricity going to the turning part of the motor. It's just got permanent magnets on it. And uh, whereas a, a brushed motor has a powered armature and there's a commutator and a bunch of other things that complicate it. And uh, this one, I just took the three lobes of a, of a common fidget spinner, put magnets onto those lobes and put electromagnets that could be turned on and off based on the position of the, uh, of the fidget spinner. And every time it went around, there was a little boost from an electromagnet that uh, attracted or repelled the, uh, the permanent magnets. I think I got it up to 5,000 RPM at one point. There's a, a third or fourth video that deals with that. But, um, but I, I just had a whole bunch of different ways of triggering the electromagnets, positioning the electromagnets, 
Uh, and while we're on this, I need to mention probably my favorite tool of all time. Uh, I was fortunate enough to make the decision to buy a laser cutter about five or six years ago. And uh, that enabled me to do just a ton of things. And on that project, if I could conceive of a, a particular mount, I would design it in Corel Draw, send it to the laser printer or laser cutter rather. And in a couple of minutes, I would have the part that I needed. What kind of laser cutter is it? Uh, I've, I've had three. I still have two of them remaining. Uh, the first one was a, uh, what they typically call a China blue uh, laser cutter, which was less than $400 on eBay delivered. And it was somewhat limited. It was, it was a crude machine. I sold it for pretty much what I paid for it and bought the next iteration, which was about a $1,500 uh, China blue, much more powerful, much better designed and built. And I also bought a Glowforge, which was a, um, a startup a couple years ago. I think I waited two years for delivery. But it's an elegant, beautiful, you can put it in your living room type piece of uh, artwork. And uh, I have those two, the big one that I got from eBay and the, uh, the Glowforge. Uh, they're a little bit different in what they do, but the end result is, is about the same. But uh, it, it's, I got rid of my milling machine. I got rid of my lathe. I just, I don't need them anymore. I can use this. Yeah, you have to, I feel like you, you need a little bit of a different mindset to work with something like a laser cutter because you kind of have to think in 2D and sort of like assemble it into a 3D part, correct? That's correct. I, I have two uh, 3D printers, but to be honest with you, I'm nowhere near as good with the 3D software as I am with the 2D software. I, as I said, I use Corel Draw. Uh, I've been using that since version one back in the probably the 90s. And, and I can do a much better job of, of expanding two-dimensional things into a three-dimensional thing than I can to generate the three-dimensional things that the 3D printer needs from scratch. Yeah, I'm sort of, I'm learning uh, 3D modeling. I just, uh, my viewers don't know this yet because I haven't published a video, but, um, but I just uh, designed like a sort of a, a computer fan holder to go over a power supply. So it quiets down my 12-volt power supply. And it's really, um, if you ever get into 3D modeling, it's really thinking in 2D first, and then you're kind of like extruding from 2D. So you kind of like build your sketch in 2D as if everything is stacked on top of each other. And then you like drag portions of this, the sketch upwards, and then you cut holes by, by drawing uh, 2D sketches on like the side of what you're, what you've extruded. And then you, you like extrude it through the shape. So I think uh, a little bit of your, your 2D knowledge will translate to, uh, to 3D. And if you're ever looking for free software, I think Autodesk allows you to use Fusion 360 for free as long as you use it for non-commercial or startup or personal uh, purposes. So that's a good place to start. Yeah, I've used a number of different uh, packages uh, starting out with uh, SketchUp. Uh, just, it's also slow. Oh, yeah. If you want something that's intricate and reasonably large, uh, it's, it's easily an overnight job. And in the middle of the overnight job, it could fail and you wind up with a pile of string all over the place when you wake up in the morning. Knock on wood, I have not yet uh, got that situation, but um, hanging out in the um, 3D printer subreddits, uh, it's definitely, uh, it's, there's definitely potential there. Do you uh, frequent Reddit at all? I do not. It's an interesting place. Um, I would say 
if you've made it this far without it, you'd probably be good to stay away from it. But it's uh, simultaneously the the best and the worst place on the entire internet. So ah. if you stick to the communities that you know, like for example, um, the ham radio hobbyists or the model railroad hobbyists, if you go into those communities, which are called subreddits, so it's like sub forums basically, um, those places you'll you'll trust me, you'll be at home. But then there's also like Reddit has. Reddit is the seedy corner of the internet as well. So it's, it kind of depends on which communities you, you go visit. Yeah, there are a lot of things on the internet that for whatever reason I've never embraced. I don't pay much attention to Twitter. I don't pay any attention to Facebook. Um, primarily, I'm, I'm a web-based person, YouTube-based person. Um, that, that's more than enough to keep me busy. Yeah, speaking of your uh, web-based stuff so not only are you great at building physical things and physical concepts and you know laser cutting but you also design your your own websites at, like you're very public about the websites that that you own and operate and anybody can go take a look at them and that that's all written from scratch really well with a little bit of help from a, an old uh, uh, program called front page but yes uh, I mean I've done web pages strictly in HTML. I know my daughter learned it that way. Uh, when you go back far enough, that was the only, I can remember the internet before there was any HTML. It was strictly text. If you looked for a, a, a weather forecast, you typed in an IP address and you got back a text uh, uh, statement that told you what the weather was going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And what's funny about all that is that I have a, um, a WordPress uh, website, which uh, I will say looks more modern than your websites. I, I won't say more responsive because I think uh, having a little bit more front end load actually makes uh, websites a little bit slower. And although WordPress, um, they really would like everyone to think that they're super fast and responsive. They're not as fast as a text-based website, that's for sure. Um, but if you go and edit the, the manual, the, the pieces of the website manually, it's still all written HTML and, and PHP and, and a couple other little things. But I mean, it's all still there. We still use it. And speaking of which, you can have a web server with a Pi Zero. You can, in fact, absolutely. You can run a, a, a web server for just yourself or you can serve it to the general public. I mean, your ISP might have uh, some issues with uh, random traffic coming onto your home network, but the Pi is perfectly capable of serving a simple website, absolutely. Yeah, one of the other projects that I had published that was uh, in Make Magazine, again, some years ago, about five or ten years ago, was a uh, video switcher that I'm still using that uh, puts the, the uh, video from three or four security cameras onto the Internet, and I serve that from my house. My ISP doesn't care what I do you know, with uploads. And I can check and see if people are in the driveway or if the mail's at the front door from literally anywhere on the planet, or I suppose in orbit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure Chris Hadfield would have logged in if you would have asked him nice, nicely enough. <laughs> that guy seemed pretty well connected. Yeah. He's kind of like my um, my Canadian representative to, to the world of, uh, of space because he's a Canadian astronaut. Okay. I mean... You have to admit, most of them up at the ISS are, are Americans, so you know I gotta I gotta take what I can get, and I'm glad that Chris Hadfield was my representative because he's uh, he seems like an upstanding guy. That's what you need. I tell you what, we you've got well, we shouldn't talk politics. No, for sure. 
<laughs> you're you're right though. It's it's easy to to uh, these days. It's easy to change any topic into into politics, right? Indeed. One other thing I wanted to mention about the the laser cutter and and folks, if they're interested, can find this on my uh, trainelectronics.com web web uh, website. I put together a uh, a Mister Rogers trolley, uh, scratch built. Uh, I built a couple of them for a layout that we have at Pittsburgh's Children's Hospital. And I got pr uh, permission from the uh, Mr. Rogers people to do that because that's a copyrighted um, image. And I built them with basically brass for the railings and, and I carved maple for the roof and the clear story and all that. I decided at, at one point that I would like to make an entire trolley with the laser cutter. And, and you talk about taking something that is uh, two-dimensional and turning it into a three-dimensional object. I've been very pleased with how it turned out. So if you go to the website and look for laser cut trolley, uh, I did everything. The railings, the benches, the roof, the clear story, the front, the base, everything with a laser cutter. And it, it turned out beautifully. I'm, I'm very, very pleased with the way that went. I saw that and it's it's actually incredibly impressive uh, and I mean I guess I guess it's not really you're not really limited by your tools you're really limited by your creativity you know laser cutters have come down in cost far enough and 3d printers for that matter that if you if you can dream it and if you can figure out how to segment it uh, into its uh, base components you could build anything you you could literally uh, build anything right Pretty much, pretty much. And I've been fortunate, fortunate that my, my brain seems to work pretty well when it comes to figuring out puzzles. Yeah, it does. It, you know, you touched on an important point because if you're finding, if you're, if you're out there listening to this and you're finding that um, the software or drawing something that will cut properly on the laser cutter or the software for, for CAD is not intuitive to you, um, it's very possible. It's just the way you you think the way you've learned to think and i'll tell you even though it might be a little bit more difficult for you if you stick to it it will click i promise it just takes a little bit of practice and you know we all learn at different rates but i guarantee you you can you can do it anybody can do this it just takes a little bit of uh, a little bit of practice yeah, you stick with it. I mean, when I had to learn Morse code to get my ham radio license, that was tedious. It, it took me weeks and weeks of study. Eventually, I got to the point where I, I was able to do it. Uh, the same thing with a computer language. I mean, I knew nothing about C when I started working with the Arduino, but stuck with it, did a lot of tests, a lot of experiments to see what would happen if I changed this, a lot of tracking down error messages, which I think in the Arduino front end are pretty pretty short as a rule <laughs> oh, yeah, and generic but yeah you can do it just spend time uh, also walk away from it periodically if you get stumped take a break for a day or two and you'll be surprised what you come back to that's actually that has its basis in psychology uh, it takes a little bit for new skills to crystallize itself in in our brains and sometimes walking away from it is what you have to do in order to crystallize that knowledge right in order to make it real I always like to think my brain's working in the background. Yep. I mean, yeah, absolutely. We all have background processes at least, right? I would hope so. <laughs> so you've also, you've mentioned in multiple of your videos and once now in this podcast that you did, um, you did some work for the children's hospital. 
And uh, being that you're a uh, model railroad enthusiast, I guess that puts you in a unique spot to bring joy to to kids at the children's hospital. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what you did for them? Yeah, about uh, oh, 10 or 11 years ago, uh, they built a new children's hospital. They actually wrapped it around an existing hospital and moved it from one part of the city to this new location. And uh, we had had a model railroad layout at the original children's hospital that had been there probably 15 years. And they wanted us to expand it. So we wound up designing a 12 by 18 layout that had the Mr. Rogers trolley running on a trestle uh, on a point to point into a mountain and uh, another train that ran on the, the ground. I designed all of the controls for that so that when you push a button, it would run for a certain period of time. And I also designed about uh, eight different animation or sound effects that went with that. Um, you know, there's an elephant that, that makes his trumpeting noise and lifts his trunk up. There's little prairie dogs that pop out of the ground when you push another button. There are uh, kids on playground equipment that spin around when you push another one. There's a ballerina that gets flipped around a, uh, a bar on another one. Um, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I've been fortunate that I've been able to uh, go out there periodically and maintain everything because it's one of those deals where I build it. I'm the guy that knows how to fix it, and it's it's been quite reliable. So we have that layout, and there's a... Uh, Harry Potter train layout that was donated to the hospital. I maintain that one too. So it's a lot of fun. You mentioned that you're um, in your 70s. Sorry to underline it for you again. But how, how does it feel um, that, to have something that's a hobby of yours when, you know, when you're in your 70s? And probably it was when you were a kid too. But how does it feel to have uh, a child uh, come up to the layout, look at the layout, and and smile, and knowing that that's maybe the only smile that kid had that day or that week. How how does that make you feel? Oh, it's wonderful. It it really is. I'll sit back sometimes and just watch the kids uh, push the buttons, and and for the first time, it's really fascinating to see them connect pushing that button with some sort of uh, animation that takes place. Um, unfortunately, most of the time when I go to visit. I'll go at uh, 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning because there's nobody there. And if I'm going to be doing some soldering or I'm going to be opening a door into the layout because they're all obviously protected by plexiglass, uh, you don't want kids around and, and I don't get to see them as often as I could. But I do get feedback from the staff and that, that helps a lot. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think if I had a, a skill that could, uh, that could make a, a real difference like that, um, I think I would be inclined to do it. In fact, I probably do have a skill that um, that could help people. I just uh, I wouldn't know how to apply it at this very time. But it's very it's very noble of you to to apply your your knowledge uh, to making someone's day brighter. I think that's I think that's just fantastic. Well, the other thing that I do with model railroading that that has something of an impact on on kids is once this uh, virus thing is over. We generally set up a modular HO railroad uh, in various communities around Christmas so that the kids can come and see the trains and enjoy them. So we'll, I don't know how soon we'll be doing that again because it's a, you know, a fairly uh, busy indoor venue. But when that happens again, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, to set the railroads up. We have an incredible um, science museum here in Ottawa, the uh, Ottawa Science and Tech Museum. It's world famous for having like a crooked uh, 
kitchen. It's a kitchen that messes with your kind of perception of uh, depth and uh, stuff like that. It's actually built on, on a slant and makes people woozy just looking inside. But um, the what makes this museum unique to me is that they have uh, four or five full-size locomotives indoors that you can walk around you can um there's like paths so you can go into the actual where the conductor would would be and and stuff like that and they're i think they're all coal all from the the coal powered steam engine uh, days it is incredible to see uh, a young child who probably doesn't have a concept of uh, trains beyond like cartoons and stuff because it's just simply not that common of a mode of transportation here um, and look up and feel like an ant next to these things that are absolutely giant. So I can just imagine uh, like seeing a, a, a model railroad layout would probably give like a very similar impression. Like, wow, this is how they run. Look at them. They can go behind like in these um, in these tunnels and stuff like it, it's incredible. It just, you know, must be incredible. Lots of fun. That's the objective. When you retire, you have to have lots of hobbies. So you have lots of fun. Yeah, I feel at my age, I don't think uh, retirement will be a concept by the time I'm in my uh, mid-60s, late-60s. But uh, I feel like I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to die doing YouTube, basically. I don't I don't think I ever, I'm ever going to stop this part of it. This is the part I choose to do, you know? Well, YouTube's an amazing tool. I, I absolutely love it. And uh, unfortunately, during all of this uh, virus stuff, the, the pandemic, I haven't been as motivated to do videos as I once was. I'm doing other things, playing around with drones and ham radio equipment and riding bikes, but uh, I'll get back to it. Yeah, I would. I would encourage you if I could. If I could give you any words of encouragement, uh, I, I, I think that your latest video, when it came out, I was excited. That was the first video I, I clicked on because it's been uh, it's been a little bit like since since you've uh, posted something for sure. Yeah, it's been months actually. I have I have a number of things that I could put on there, but uh, it's kind of like Groundhog Day, the movie. You know. The routines are all screwed up and you just do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, that's true. Have you ever thought of doing more uh, tutorially, uh, like basics sort of videos, like uh, teaching people the, the basics of electron flow and resistance and current and stuff like that? Uh, I've thought about it and rejected it because that's not my strength. I mean, I could do it, but there are a lot of other people that do it as well or better than I would. Uh, I would rather do something that is not necessarily unique, but at least not common. That is definitely the feeling I get from your channel. I just, uh, I just know you have all those years of uh, teaching experience and a lot of people, all they need is a different voice, right? Sometimes they listen to one video and it doesn't click for them. And then, you know, somebody else will say it in a different, slightly different way and it'll just jive with them, right? Yeah, uh, that's a possibility, but I, I still have other things to cover first. <laughs> Fair enough, and and I'm excited to see what the what the future holds for uh, for your YouTube channel. That's for sure. So for the uh, for the previous guests I've had on, I've I've gave them all the exact same question uh, towards the 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 end of the podcast here. So this question has a little bit of a, of a setup, but the setup is that you get a uh, government grant, uh, and the point of me saying government just means that it's a, let's say it's a semi unlimited source of funds for you. But you get an unlimited uh, a government grant to start the business of your dreams. So profitability is not really a concern in this question, but, but it does have to provide a service or a product or something like that. So you get a grant to start a business. Um, what kind of business do you start? Well, that's an interesting question. 
Um, I think I would lean towards something that, that had to do with maybe a, a laser cutting business. Um, I really enjoy putting things together and having them come out of the laser cutter, put them together, have them, you know, take something that was just a, an idea and turn it into a physical object. So maybe a laser cutting service, whether I would do something for other people or train them in how to do it so that they could create their own things, teach them how to use it. That's a very cool idea, actually. I love the training aspect. I've actually, um, I'm starting a small business uh, this year. Hopefully this year. Yeah, we'll see. Um, training people, basically what I do at the college, but uh, training technicians in their in their workspaces, really. And so I think I love the idea of, of training. And I think for, for myself, it, I don't have a laser cutter. And if I had a way to to learn how to use one beforehand, like a, some sort of service like that, I think that would be something I would take advantage of. Yeah, we have a couple of maker spaces in Pittsburgh that, that give you access to such things, but the, they fell on hard times as well. And I'm not even sure that they're in operation anymore, but that was the type of service that they would provide. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, my public library has a laser cutter, but um, it's all the way across town and you have to rent uh, time. But I think they don't give you support. They just... Uh, you know, you have the computer attached to it, you get your files from the internet and you put your material in and, and run it. I don't think they have a uh, a technician there. And so I kind of worry about the when this virus is over, what, what state of repair it's in when I go to give it a shot. Yeah, they do have to be uh, maintained and kept aligned for sure. Otherwise, they're not worth much. And the uh, I, I think I was reading that the smoke can often uh, cloud the mirrors. And if the mirrors get a little bit dirty, then they start burning because they're not reflecting anymore. Uh, yeah, you have, to, you have to clean them periodically. I do tear mine down, but I've got powered exhaust fans on both of them that do a pretty good job of removing the smoke. And there's also a, um, uh, a positive pressure. There's a, a blower, if you will, that forces air through the nozzle and keeps it away from the primary lens and also blows debris away from the area that's cutting. Well, that's useful. I was uh, suggested to to look at uh, a laser cutter called the, the K40, and I think it's the new sort of generation China blue type thing, but it's still uh, like $700 Canadian. So, it, you know, I might get one, but at the moment, um, the YouTube channel is definitely a money sink and not a money generator. So... Maybe in the future. We'll see. Yeah, well, hopefully that the, the YouTube will uh, take care of the uh, the need to buy stuff like that. That would be nice. It would be nice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've never monetized my YouTube channel simply because it, it, it's not a big priority for me right now. And I, I don't like to bother people with a whole bunch of ads if I can avoid it. Yeah, I'm looking at the stats and most people run an ad blocker. And I don't blame them because some of the ads are just absolutely horrendous. Like, uh, like when I watch... Um, when I watch my um, my friends' YouTube channels, um, I don't have an ad blocker because I'm typically in bed on my phone. And um, yeah, sometimes I get like two two ads for a mobile game in a row. And I mean, if I'm being honest, I don't even own a mobile game on my phone. It's all I don't have any apps that are that are games. So why would Google think that I'd be interested in that? But you know, I guess it is what it is. Or if you mis mistake, make the mistake of searching Amazon for some particular product, you'll get ads for the next two or three weeks. Absolutely. Or if uh, it's not a problem for me because I'm not, uh, I don't have Facebook and I haven't had Facebook for a very long time, 
But um, like my parents, for example, they use Facebook often. Uh, if they have the app on their phone and they have a conversation about something searchable, that becomes their ads. Like there's no there's no hiding the fact that Facebook is listening to whatever's going on. Yeah, for sure. I'm looking over a list of things here that I wanted to uh, to cover, and I think I've hit most of them. Do you have any questions? No, I think I think actually um, I'm getting close to the end myself. Uh, so, but the the biggest thing is is where can listeners to this podcast um, interact with you? Do you just want them to go to the comments section of your YouTube channel? Or do you want them to go to your website? What's the best place? Uh, you can go to my website, uh, either trainelectronics.com or davebodner.com. Uh, my email is on there. You can send me an email if you have questions about something. You can put comments on the uh, YouTube channel. You're probably aware, but if you put a comment on the YouTube channel, I get an email immediately saying, hey, there's a new comment about you know, fidget spinner or whatever. So you know, whatever works for you, I'm uh, pretty much an open book as far as getting in touch. You guys should definitely take a look at uh, what Dave has, at least on YouTube, but his his website is just a dearth of knowledge as well. I would highly recommend you check out his stuff. Every single one of his published videos are interesting, so go take a look. And Dave, I want to thank you so much for dedicating some time to uh, speak to me and kind of uh, let the viewers know who you are. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Went, time went quickly. It did. And I want to thank all of you listeners out there for listening, and I hope to catch you in the next one. Have a good one. Bye-bye.